Hello, and welcome to Sip, Sip, Hooray. I'm Mary Orlin. And I'm Mary Babbitt. We're so glad you joined us today. We've got a great uh, conversation ahead for you. And you know, Mary Orlin, sometimes I think I'm a busy person, but man, I feel like a slacker today because our guest, Laura Catania, is a vintner at one of the most renowned wineries in the world, Catania Zapata. And she's also a practicing doctor in emergency medicine. She's an author of two celebrated books about wine, and she's a mother of three. So today we're going to find out how she juggles it all and also just how she made time for us, Mary. I know. It's pretty amazing. Um, I've known Laura for several years. I was fortunate enough to visit her family's winery and vineyards in Argentina in the Mendoza region several years ago. Um, Got to meet her brother, her winemaker, her mother and father. Met Laura back in the States, back in San Francisco, where she splits her time between Argentina and San Francisco. But Um, Laura, welcome to the show. We're so excited to have you with us. And um, for our listeners who may not know much about Catena Zapata and you, can you give us a little background on your family's history and coming to Argentina and um, establishing the vineyards and the winery there? Yeah, so our family was founded in 1902 by my great-grandfather who came from Italy to Argentina. And then, as you might know, there were all these Italian and Spanish immigrants in the late 19th and early 20th century who basically multiplied the population by 10. So you had all these people wanting to live their European lifestyle in South America. And what did they need more than anything else? Wine, right? (laughs) Of course. So people like my great-grandfather, Nicola Catena, came from Le Marque in Italy to Argentina with the specific purpose of planting vineyards, making wine. And that's how the family tradition started. But then because we have this very important domestic market, you know, people in Argentina drink wine. They drink a little bit of beer, maybe some cocktails, but wine is the main fun beverage. So we had most of the wine being drunk in Argentina and not much exported. And my father actually was inspired by the judgment of Paris, you know, where famously California wines defeated some of the leading French wines in in a blind tasting in France. And, uh, and he was inspired by that to say, how about we try and make wines in Argentina that can stand with the best of the world? And I was going on my direction of being a doctor. I didn't really have interest in working for the family winery, not because I didn't love wine, because I did, but mostly because I wanted to do my own thing, help people in my own way. And then I came back to working with my father because I was so interested in all the science of viticulture in the science and art of winemaking and in really continuing this more than 100 year old tradition and i've been working with my father over the last 25 years when really argentine wine has come, gone from being completely unknown to today being you know argentine malbec it's on every wine list at every store and i've seen this whole transformation it's very exciting to be part of this revolution that happened in Argentina because my father really was the pioneer. Well, and speaking of that, uh, you are you now running the operation? Yeah, so I actually am managing director since 2009. And uh, you mentioned my doctor job. I've worked part-time as a doctor, I'm an emergency doctor, and it is not easy. 
Uh, but I've always really separated my lives. For example, I will not answer a call from the winery if I'm in the hospital because the priority are the patients. And um, good, smart. My, my, <laughs> exactly. And I've always had it a really big priority, my doctor job, because that's somewhere you can't make mistakes. You know, you can prune a vine incorrectly and lose some fruit, but you can't make a mistake in the hospital. However, I do think that I've learned so much from medicine to apply in the winery. Things like teamwork, attention to detail, understanding, you know, the science of, of wine, which is, which has many parallels to the science of humans. You know, science is science. You know, now we're talking about microbes in the soil, microbes in the GI tract. There, there are actually so many connections between the two. And um, so, yeah, so I'm, I'm managing director. I manage, you know, from the production to the research at the Catena Institute to the sales. And uh, I'm a little bit everywhere. I talk on Zoom or on Teams basically six hours a day. And uh, today I was talking to one of our viticulturalists in the vineyard, showing me the vineyard on the phone. And it's been really hard with COVID uh, to do my job, but our head winemaker, Alejandro Gil and I were talking the other day that we are talking more now than we used to. So there's a little bit of an upside. That's interesting. So more communication. And um, how are the vineyards doing right now? Well, so right now it's beautiful, beautiful because it's spring. We were looking at the vineyard today with Belen Yacono, who manages our Adriana Vineyard at uh, 5,000 feet elevation. And I could actually see the bees and the butterflies in the air with the little flowers and, and they're, they're the grapes just, you know, just starting. Uh, there's a little bit of flowering going on. They're just, you know, the little buds coming out and the sky was clear and we could see the mountains and um, I was getting so incredibly homesick. Mm. How often are you there? So normally I'm in Argentina every other month. I'm there all the time in person, but uh, the situation with COVID is not horrible in terms of how many sick people and how many cases the, the government has you know done a full shutdown then they're opening gradually depending on the risk level so they're doing a pretty good job you know what is a good job with covid you know it's so hard to know um but uh what what's happened is that they've closed the airports and there's no interprovincial travel so you know in the US, us you can go from california to oregon drive through nobody stops you in argentina you can actually not go from one province to the next. And the airport in Buenos Aires, the main city, is only open for repatriation. So oh. if I went to Argentina, I'd have to do two weeks of quarantine and I might not be able to get out. And I still have a 15-year-old daughter in, at the house and a dog, Mala. And I think that that would be a little scary to not be able to come back to, to my, my children and my 19-year-old my who's doing college remotely, but, uh, but I will be there soon. Yeah. Right. Well, that's, you know, we all hope we can travel soon rather than later because we've all been stuck, you know, we're all at home just kind of waiting it out and hoping things start, you know, turning for the better. Yeah. But um, so um, let's talk about the, um, your most recent book, Gold in the Vineyards. Yeah. And um, I'd love to talk about the inspiration behind it. And um, we'll start there and have a few more questions for you about that. Yeah, so Gold in the Vineyards is a book about the most famous vineyards in the world, according to me, <laughs> Laura Catena. And 
you know, you might say, well, how can a producer from Argentina write this book? But the reality is that over the last 20 years, I have met all these producers at, you know, the, the Wine Spectator, the New York Wine Experience, at the Parker Tastings, at the Suckling Fairs. You know, there's so many wine shows, pro wine, that you actually get to know these other families. And I had always wondered, ever since my first trips to France, when I was still finishing my medical school, having no intention of working at the family, just going with my dad to France as his translator, because I learned French when I was quite young, and I have this kind of obsession with French. And so I would go with my dad as his translator, and, you know, we go to the Chateau Lafitte and Chateau Ikea, and I'm thinking, oh, my God, how, how are these, these wines so famous? What, what is it about how, the, the place? How did these, this family, these people find this place? How did it become so well-known? And what I realized was that, you know, every wine region had their Eiffel Tower. You know, if you ask somebody Paris, Eiffel Tower, right? You know, some people might know Versailles, Georges Pompidou, other places. But, you know, the, the one thing that everybody knows is Eiffel Tower. And I realized that every region had their Eiffel Tower. And what I also realized that the stories behind these, these wines were so interesting. There were, you know, a guy dying fight, uh, falling from a horse that left the, the chateau in hands of his young wife who almost got killed at the guillotine during the French Revolution. This was Madame Diquem, right? This is Josephine Diquem. And actually, I was at Chateau Diquem about two years ago, and I saw her portrait and took a picture next to it. You know, these, these are real people that exist that created the, these incredible wines. And what I realized was that every story behind one of these great wines was very rich. There were ups and downs, but there was determination. There was never giving up. And I wanted to tell that story as also the story about the soil and the climate, because every one of these properties also had something interesting to say about the winemaking, about the way the, the grapes were grown. But I really saw it all in colors and in illustrations. And I don't know if you've read this uh, comic called the, the Drops of God. Yes, I have. Yeah. So it's mm -hmm. a, a Japanese, I have it right here, actually. The authors are uh, Tadashi Agi and Shu Okimoto. And it was a great sensation in Japan, all over Asia. And it's, yeah. it's basically a, a manga about these two sommeliers that compete to identify the flavors and taste of wine. It's a long, beautiful story. I recommend it for everybody. You can actually find it on eBay. You can find it in French, English, and Japanese if you, if you read uh, Japanese. But I was really inspired by how they had been able to tell stories through illustrations. And that was the inspiration for um, Gold in the Vineyards, which is an illustrated book about wine, but with some writing and some illustrations. And I did not do the illustrations. Many people ask me. I hired a professional. <laughs> I was wondering, because yeah. it, it's not until the last page in the book that you see who the illustrations are by. And I was thinking, oh my God, did she illustrate <laughs> this too? I mean, she is just Wonder Woman. <laughs> but, you know, I love the format. And each page, when you turn, it's um, a surprise. I, you know, it's just, there's, there's kind of a mystery. And um, I'm wondering how you decided, you know, what types of illustrations you wanted. And even in the format, some of the words are bold, some are all caps, you know, how did you, what's your thought behind that? Well, I wanted it to read like a fairy tale, because to me, these stories have a lot of elements of fairy tales where there's always, you know, a villain, something bad that happens, and then a happy ending, because, you know, these wines are still very collected and very successful. 
And uh, so the language is a little bit of a fairy tale language. And the scenes I chose were scenes that had power. So actually one of my favorites, I'm looking at right now, I might tell you guys to look at it. It's, the, it's in the, the Romane Conti uh, chapter where, you know, Romane Conti is, you know, the, the most famous vineyard in Burgundy. And um, yeah, I'm looking for it. And, uh, and basically, page 81. What? Oh, page 81. Great. So what happens is that the, the Prince of Conti, uh, on the page 85 is this particular illustration, mm -hmm. is, is trying to buy the vineyard. And also, uh, Madame uh, Pompidou, who is the king's mistress, is trying to buy, buy the vineyard. And basically, the Prince of Conti wins because he manages to have another person buy the vineyard and he pays a ton of money for it. And he defeats the king's mistress, which is a very big feat. Apparently at that time, the, the king's mistress was very powerful. And he gets the vineyard. And the scene to illustrate this is a um, hand fight. Uh, what do you call that when you put up a arm wrestle <laughs> between the, the Madame uh, Pompidou and the Prince of Conti. And that would have never happened, right? There's no way that uh, a man and a woman uh, would have done, uh, what, do, what do you call it again? The arm wrestling. Arm wrestling. Uh, but in, in my book, it happens. And so mm -hmm. uh, I also really enjoyed the illustrations of winemaking. So for example, in the Chateau Iquiem, which is a Sauterne wine, I have a whole page on how uh, Botrytis, uh, and let's see, it's, uh, it's 51, how the the noble rot happens you know when does the bad rot happen that actually you know makes the grapes taste yucky and mm -hmm. the noble rot that gives you that really sweet magical you know very limited production uh, it's like a tenth of what you can make for normal wine goes into these sweet wines you know how does that happen and you know do you really want somebody to tell you how that happens or do you want to see it <laughs> of course you want to see it in well, the that, drawing, right? Nice. Yes, you make it all very digestible. <laughs> and you know, one of the other things I think is fascinating about the book and that I really loved is that you dedicated it to the women in your family. And as Mary Orlin mentioned earlier, there are a lot of female stories woven in the story of these most famous vineyards. Um, and why did you want to do that? Why, why the focus on yeah, men? Yeah, so actually the, the dedication to the women happened later, but the, the dedication to finding interesting women was at the core of the project. So I wanted to tell the stories of these families. I knew there were women in these families. Most of the time I hadn't heard of them. I'd only heard of the men because, you know, until my generation and the, the women younger than me, there were not a lot of women running important wineries. You know, there's Corinne Mesetsopoulos. Like, we know them. They're like, you can count them in your hand. Now there's so many, you, you, you don't even know them all. Uh, but uh, when I started, there were not that many. Uh, but I knew that those women existed because in my own family, my, my great-grandfather, Nicola Catena, was usually the one spoken of. But the person who planted all of the family's vineyards was my great-grandmother, Ana Mosheta. And in fact, one year, uh, she was pregnant. She had six children and she couldn't plant the vineyard. And Nicola and a crew planted a vineyard and the vineyard didn't take. And so he said to his son, my grandfather, and, and then my, my father heard the story that, you know, never again will he let anybody but Anna plant the vineyard. So I knew there were these women that had been very involved, 
and I wanted to tell their story. So every time I looked at a winery to tell the story, I looked for the women's stories and it wasn't that hard. They were all there, but they hadn't been highlighted. So in my book, there's as many heroes as sheroes. Now, when the book was really almost finished, I had to start thinking of who to dedicate it to. And I had been listening, you know, visually to all these stories about women. And I started thinking of, well, what have been the influences in my life? And I realized that the women in my life had had such a great impact. And, and I never talked about it because I always talk about my father. You know, my father was the pioneer of high altitude wine in Argentina, of Malbec. I've been working with my father for 25 years. My mom actually runs a computer business. She's this genius person, you know, but she has her own business. Yeah. But I've been working with my father and I admire my father so much and I'm always talking about him. And I don't think I had, I had stopped to think of the impact that the women in the family had had. And so I go from, you know, my great grandmother that was like my grandmother because I never met my grandmother, uh, but uh, to my daughter, you know, and what each one of these women taught me. And uh, it is actually one of my favorite parts of the book. That's beautiful. And their portraits are all so lovely. I really appreciated oh, thank that. You. Thank you. Um, speaking of women, I was reading another interview you did where um, you were talking about your grandfather, great-grandfather, and that one of his greatest accomplishments, he said, was he left a vineyard and winery to his three <laughs> sons, and he found husbands for his daughters. And then you said to your dad, well, I've already found my husband. I'd like the winery and vineyard. Yeah, so that's a true story that there's this photograph of my great-grandfather and his wife, Anna, the one who planted the vineyards and their six children. And one time my father and I are looking at, at the photograph and my father says, yeah, he was really proud. My grandfather, it was my father's grandfather that he left the, the winery and the vineyard to the men. And, and, and I said, well, so what did he leave for the daughters? And he said, yeah, found them a husband. He was equally as proud of that. And, but, but you know, what I like about telling that story is not whatever it might say about my great grandfather. You know, he was an amazing man. He went to Argentina when he was only 18, built a family winery, a family wine tradition. He worked alongside his uh, wife, but it was another time. It was a time when you just didn't expect a woman to be able to uh, head up any business. And uh, I think he would have been very surprised to see what I'm doing today. He would have been equally as surprised to know that we're selling our wines in the United States, in Italy. We sell our wines in Italy, where he came from. We sell our wines in Vietnam. I think that would have been equally surprising to him as knowing that you know a woman was running his family winery so yeah. cool so what do you think since your dad was this big pioneer that as you said put argentine malbec and really put malbec back on the map um you know because it's an old varietal like two thousand years old yeah. but until fairly recently people really weren't drinking it and your father uh has been celebrated for making it uh a wine that everyone, as you said, is on restaurant lists, is in the wine stores, and and it's and people now know it as a delicious wine. But what do you think your stamp's going to be? Like, uh, what do you want to be known for? Yeah. You know, I, I've been asked this question before, and my name Catena means chain in Italian. I don't know if you know that in in Italian and Latin. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think of myself as part of a chain. 
So, you know, the chain starts hundreds of years ago. Our family were farmers in Italy. Then they go to my great-grandfather. Then, you know, my grandfather's part of the chain, my father, me, my children, nieces, nephews, my siblings. And I really see myself as part of this chain of life. You know, the vineyards get planted, they become old, you have to replant. And, you know, what I've done is simply continue with my father's vision of making Argentine wines that can stand with the best of the world. And that is easier said than done because there are a lot of threats on farming right now. You know, there's vineyard viruses, there's water shortage, there's climate change, uh, there's competition, you know, Malbec is the fashionable grape, then it's Prosecco, then it's back to Malbec. You know, the crazy thing with uh, quarantine is that Malbec sales are up all over the world. And I think it's, Malbec is just a loving wine. It's, it's the fireplace wine. It's the versatile wine. It has, you know, rich flavors and smooth tannins. It's the wine that mm. pairs with a lot of different things. And uh, I hate to talk about millennials because the millennials don't like it when people talk about them as millennials. But the truth is that the millennial generation came to adulthood with Malbec. And, um, and I think that they still have that first love sort of devotion to Malbec. And uh, it, it's really interesting to see this resurgence in Malbec. And, but in the end, I think it's due to the fact that Malbec tastes good. It, 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 you mm -hmm. know, it, it can taste differently from different regions and there is quite a diversity of Malbec, but it's always got you know, that richness, the, the nice chocolatey aromatics, which are not from oak. So Malbec has natural vanillin. So it'll have this kind of chocolatey, you know, smoky, aromatic, spicy, and then rich tannins, but always smooth. And in fact, in the research I did, because I, I've been obsessed for the last 15 years about the history of Malbec. And there's actually a page in the book about the history of Malbec. The reason why Malbec was actually more widely planted in the Medoc and Bordeaux in the 18th and 19th centuries than Cabernet Sauvignon was that it was required to add softness to the Cabernet Sauvignon. So you know Cabernet is often a little bitter. And imagine back then they were harvesting much earlier. They had a lot of green flavors and they needed you know, that smoother, sweeter, without sugar, just, you know, that, that, that velvety uh, component of the Malbec. And uh, yeah, so I can't remember the question anymore. <laughs> Your stamp on the, right. on the oh, winery. So the <laughs> Your mark. So my mark is really continuing this vision for Argentina and making sure that we're still making wine in Argentina, that our winery is still making wine, but our uh, fellow wine uh, people in Argentina, all the other producers, we're really close to everybody in Argentina, the, the farmers. You know, 50% of the vineyards in Argentina are owned by small growers. So Argentina has a really vibrant wine culture. I want to make sure that we're all still making wine in 100 years. And that will be my mark, which will not be seen for a while. Right. And speaking of 100 years, um, you... You've said you have a hundred year plan where every seller around the world will have a bottle of Argentine Malbec in it. I hope it's, I hope it's shorter than, than a hundred years. You know, I have the hundred year plan <laughs> because that way I'll never know if I achieved it or not. It, it's a very good strategy. Uh, but yeah, so I really think that over the last 10, 15 years, we've discovered these 
high altitude, you know, 5,000 feet elevation, cool climate, lots of sunlight, limestone rich alluvial soils. We've got these pre phylloxeric plant selections, you know, ancient plant selections of Malbec and Cabernet Sauvignon that no longer exist in Europe. You know, Mal Argentina is the old world for Malbec. We are ungrafted. So our vines are really planted on the soil, the, the, the Vitis vinifera, they don't get grafted with American rootstocks. So, you know, I'm trying to remember, I keep on losing my thought, you guys. We're talking about 100 oh, year plan. Oh, 100 year plan. So yeah, 100 year old vines, 100, 100 year um, vines. So I think that there's so many threats on viticulture and uh, there's so much work to be done to preserve all this that we have in Argentina. We have so much tradition, uh, so much diversity of plant material, of the way of making wine. You know, in Argentina, you're still pretty much hand harvesting everything. There's not as much technology in Argentina as there are in other places. And we can make terroir specific wines. We have a vineyard, Adriana, where we have three different wines that all taste completely different and they're literally planted one next to the other. And I think that these wines are profound. They have aging potential. They have beautiful acidity and tanning concentration. I think they have the capacity to age of a great Super Tuscan, of a, a great Premier Cru from Burgundy or, or Bordeaux, uh, of you know the great wines in the world, great California blends or Cabernet Sauvignon. And so you know, my question is, why would they not be in these collective cellars? And the truth is that, as you said before, although we've been making Malbec since the 1850s and actually making wine in Argentina since the 16th century, Argentina is only new to exports. And so I think it's a question of time because the quality is there. And, you know, in the last three years, we've had seven 100 point wines from the Adriana Vineyard, which is something that collectors like to hear, you know, high rating. <laughs> <laughs> they Absolutely. sure do. Hey, Laura, tell us about the Container Research Institute. Okay. It's um, run through the winery and, uh, and you were talking about sort of the history of Malbec. Yeah. Is it just to, uh, to further that or to do research yeah. into it? Tell me about what you guys have going on there. Yeah, so when I started working with my dad, I didn't know anything about selling. You know, I, I was a doctor with an emergency medicine specialty. specialty. And I think I knew a lot about managing people, but I didn't realize that was an important skill set. I basically saw myself as a scientist that now had to learn how to sell something and, and make wine, which was not my specialty in science. But what I realized was that plants and people, you know, we share so many things in terms of, you know, there's diseases, the, you know, viruses, you know, the plants need water, we need water. You know, in the end, nature is nature. And what I told my father is, listen, I think that to do what you're trying to do, which is make Argentine wines that can stand with the best of the world, we need to do two things. First of all, understand how is it that those great wines are made? You know, these stories I tell in Gold in the Vineyards in my book, you know, how do you get from point A to point B? How do you make these kind of unforgettable wines? And, and actually, my term is unforgettable because people often ask me, so you know, what is it about a wine? What makes them so famous? And it's something that makes them unforgettable. It's got to taste incredible. It's got to age well, but it's got to have a little something that makes it unforgettable. Uh, and, and I can't tell people how to find that. It's either there or not. 
And so, you know, I said to myself, how do we make these great wines? So the initial thing my father had done was the flying winemakers. So he had had consultants from all over the world. You know, we had Alberto Antonini, we had Paul Hobbs, we had Jacques Lourdon, and these really amazing winemakers would come to Argentina. My father would actually lend them a part of our winery. And he'd say, you here, you have these tanks and these barrels. In exchange, you have to teach my team everything you know. It was a great method. You know, it was this kind of mentoring program that my father just sort of set it up and then he said, go. This is classic of my father. He, he gets something great started and then he lets the brilliant people work. And so the first question was, how are these other great wines made? And you know, we got a lot of advice from these famous uh, flying winemakers. But then what we found was that much of the advice was not pertinent to Argentina because we have this high altitude climate that exists nowhere else in the world. We have vineyards at 1500, feet, uh, 1,500 meters elevation. And in fact, one of these consultants said to us, oh, you know, you need to let the light into the vine, take out the leaves. And we said, well, I don't think we should do that because traditionally in Argentina, you don't do that because there's going to be too much heat and too much sun. And they said, no, 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 you have to do that. And so we tried that and then the grapes burnt and they did not make mm. a very good wine. So then the other thing was Malbec. So the original advice was make Malbec like a Bordeaux blend. So do your long macerations and don't do a lot of punch down because, you know, with Cabernet, you wouldn't do that like you would with Pinot Noir because you're going to get a wine that's too tannic. And it was all about the texture and the tannins and softening the tannins by doing a long maceration. Well, that was the wrong advice because what we found out was that what Malbec had was these really beautiful aromatics, floral aromatics, red, black fruit, spiciness. And when we did these log macerations, we lost some of the fruit. Oh, and in fact, oh, that's and the tannins were soft already. So we didn't have to worry about softening the tannins. And so what we found was actually that Malbec winemaking should be more like Pinot Noir winemaking. And so now we use whole cluster fermentation. We do punch downs. We do the things that you would more likely do with Pinot Noir. We do a lot of work to control temperature so that we don't lose the beautiful high altitude aromatics. So the Institute started as a place to learn what we could learn from the great wines of the world. And it turned into, let's actually understand our own terroir, our own place, so that we can show the world what it's like. And we have to do our own research because nobody can tell us what to do in Argentina other than ourselves. That's true. That's true. And you all have really, I mean, it's a deep dive into Malbec with the different clones. Um, you have um, the uh, Catena selections, um, the, the different clones that you all have cultivated. And what I think is really cool is that you share the research with the world. Yeah. So the question about the clones, and I, and I hate that word clone because it sounds like <laughs> some yeah. sort of like GMO something. So actually a clone is simply a cutting. So, uh, you know, when you reproduce vines, you're basically taking the, the, taking the pruning. So, you know, when you prune the vine, you have this little branch. And if you plant that on the soil, it grows. So a vine can grow either by its seed or by, you know, a branch being planted on the soil. And when you're grafting, you actually have to graft that little branch onto an American rootstock, which has the roots. But in Argentina, we do mostly without rootstock. So we're literally taking, you know, the pruning, we prune the vine, we take the little cuttings, 
we put it in a little pot with some soil, we water it, and the next year we've got a little vine to plant. It's, it's beautiful. You can do it in your own house. You know, you can steal a few. That's why, that's why you hear about all these suitcase clones, because it's actually pretty right. easy to steal uh, vine material. All you got to do is cut a little branch, you know, put it in a plastic bag and put it in your suitcase, although it is very illegal to do that. But we all know people have done that. So what we found out was that with Malbec, we had this extraordinary uh, diversity. So uh, in, in the rest of the world, maybe there were, I don't know, under five different versions of Malbec. So this would be like having only three humans left. Whereas in Argentina, we had hundreds and hundreds and hundreds because the, the diversity had not been lost. And what we realized was that this was our goal that we needed to preserve this diverse genetic selection. And that's why I say that Argentina is the old world for Malbec, because mm -hmm. in, in, in the real old world, you know, in France, uh, mostly where Malbec comes from, they, they don't have the diversity of genetic material of vines. So I actually prefer using the name a cutting, a clone, mm -hmm. especially when you're talking about massage selections, which are very diverse. Uh, but we also have some individual cuttings which would be a clone that we will plant one vineyard with mostly one cutting and the advantage of that is that most of the vines will ripen at the same time but i'm convinced that actually having a little bit of uneven ripening is better for quality because you know you get some uh, grapes that are a little more ripe than others and that combination of the slightly more ripe and the slightly less ripe i think gives a better texture to the wine Sure. A bit more nuance, perhaps. Yes. Right. So in um, your study of these great vineyards of the world, um, first of all, did you visit all, have you visited all 11 of them? So I have, the I've actually vineyards? not been to all of them. Uh, I have met all of the owners and tasted all their wines, but I have actually never been to Australia. Can you believe that? Oh, time Bucket to go. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. Yeah. Um, and then from the lessons learned from these vineyards, do you think it's still possible today for someone to have the goal or make the quest to go find another great or establish another great vineyard today? Oh, absolutely. I think that the famous vineyards of 100 years from now are probably today a little family vineyard somewhere and the person doesn't even know it. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, we forgot to mention earlier that this is your, this book, Gold in the Vineyards, is not your first book about wine. You are very well known for your book celebrating Argentine wine, Vino Argentino, where you really, some people call it like the Bible of Argentine wine, you know, and uh, have it, people have loved reading about it and learning about it. So you know of what you speak. You've been researching this and uh, living this for a lot of years now. Yeah, so Vino Argentino happened in a similar way to Golden the Vineyards, that there wasn't an English language book about Argentine wine that could help somebody traveling to Argentina who was really interested in wine. And Vino Argentino came to fill that void. And initially I was trying to get somebody to write it, but you know, I hired somebody, I read some of what they wrote, and then I talked to my agent who uh, helped me find a publisher, and she said, I think you should write it. And I remember that 
she gave me this chapter of a wide book and uh, I can't remember, I, I don't know if it was, you know, the guy that wrote the Domaine Tampier book, what's it, he's so famous, like maybe the most famous wine writer of all times. Yeah. Um, would it be, uh, let's see. Anyhow, you, one of you guys can find uh, it, maybe Google it. Yeah. Anyhow, so she gave me a bit of this book and she said, this is how good your writing has to be. And, you know, I'm a doctor. <laughs> And a, and a mom <laughs> and but I actually my great passion as a child was reading and writing so I kind of went into science because I wanted to do something scientific I thought that was what would help the world progress and medicine and I wanted to help people but my my sort of secret passion has always been reading and writing and language and all that mm -hmm. so but when I read this I said well there's no way I can write this well and I did write it uh myself with an editor who would basically critique what I wrote, say, okay, you need a story here, you know, tell us more about this person, give us a recipe here. But she'd never been to Argentina. So she helped me tell it in a more interesting way. And then Chronicle Books, my publisher, which is a fantastic publisher out of San Francisco, they really insisted that I should have recipes and maps. And so that was, I think, a really good addition. So I have a list of about 50 wineries with all their emails. I have maps of where they are and I have recipes. And I think that that added a lot to the book. And in addition, I talk about all the different wine regions and what are the characteristics, both the soil and climate, but more their history in terms of cultural history. Well, it's a fantastic book and oh, congratulations on it and Gold in the Vineyards. Thank you. Absolutely. So Laura, looking to the future of Catena Zapata, um, how do you see that playing out? Are your children in, interested in getting involved in the family business? Well, you know, I still feel that we have the Adriana Vineyard that people have called it the Grand Cru of South America, and that's gotten all these 100-point wines that we understand pretty well. It was planted in the early 90s, but I still feel like I'm studying it. And we have five vineyards in the family that you know I think it takes at least 100 years to really understand a place so I almost feel like I'm in the middle beginning of, of understanding these vineyards and uh, you know and now you have to also understand the ec ecosystem because it's it's essential for organic farming for for understanding how these vineyards are going to withstand climate change you know i think it, it's become really complex uh, to make wine but in terms of my children i have three i also have nieces and nephews you know so this is a family winery uh i my nephew from my brother's oldest son uh, my brother and i are older a lot older than my, my little sister adriana who the the vineyard is named after her so the the oldest grandkid actually did a couple websites for me this summer uh, did an incredible job on his way to doing a PhD in psychology at UC Santa Barbara. So his summer job was doing a couple of websites. And then my son Dante has worked at the winery. My son Luca is doing a PhD in chemistry at UCLA. And the crazy thing is he's doing organic chemistry, which is exactly what wine is, but he claims that he has no interest in working at the winery. So <laughs> I, I, I don't want to say the obvious, but I haven't said anything. Uh, and then I've got my daughter, Nicola, who is very passionate about social justice and wants to change the world. And, you know, who knows? Uh, she enjoyed actually 
when we've gone to Argentina, she often goes and helps at the hospitality. She likes to be the cashier. I'm not kidding you. She, <laughs> she tried social media. She tried other things. And then she found her spot as the cashier. She loved it. That's so funny. I'm telling your family, you're all way overachievers. I'm so impressed by all of you. Your father, a scientist, and then a vintner, same with you, a physician and vintner well, you know, at the my, same. My sister is very impressive too. She has a PhD from Oxford and teaches history. And she was the brains oh behind the Malbec Argentino label, the label that, that tells the story of Malbec through. Oh, oh yes. Yeah, that's been a really popular, uh, well, it's, this one. It's popular or not because it's, it costs a hundred dollars. So maybe the word popular, <laughs> word, but it's, no. it's a beautiful old line. Uh, yeah. The, the, it's a beautiful illustrated label and it, you know, kind of tells a story going across the label. Yeah. It, 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 really it has cool. these four women that tell the story of Malbec. And to my knowledge it's the first label to ever tell the history of a variety on the label. But my sister, I think that's yeah, true. my sister, the, my little sister came up with that. And my brother is also very talented. He uh, has, makes his own wines. He's really into organics, biodynamics, and uh, he's, he's great. Yeah. We do have, you, guys are you know, I think we're all very okay. flawed in our family in many ways, but uh, we like to study. You're busy. Well, <laughs> your, your nickname, when you were a little girl, I yeah. read your nickname was Mouse because yeah. you just yeah. never saw La Lauchita, the little mouse. Awesome. Hey, you know, I wanted to ask you about the wines. I was impressed that the winery offers so many different price points. You mentioned the $100 bottle that your sister um, yeah. designed the label yeah. for. But for someone, Malbec is not new, but on our show, we like to help people feel like, you know, yeah. you don't have to know everything about wine. So for a newcomer to Malbec, yeah. what should they know about it? And what would you say would be a good starter wine for them from your collection? So, and, uh, Mary, have you ever tried Chanel Number no. Five? Of course. Skin? I'm sure the oh, two yeah. Marys are familiar, especially Mary the fashionista. Right, so right. Yes, I, I can still remember the first time that somebody gave me a Chanel Number no. Five, and I was maybe twenty-something years old. I I thought it was just God's gift, and so I have a wine that I call my Chanel Number no. Five. I'm sorry if it sounds arrogant, but it's the Catena Malbec, the the classic. It's a blend of four altitudes, and it's all the same Malbec selection, but planted in four places that are very different in climate, but very close to each other because of the altitude. They're different climates, different soils. And this is a blend that we make every year so that it really represents the vintage. And we're able to use more or less from different parts of Argentina, of Mendoza, because you know every year there's the places that shine more than others. The climate in Argentina is actually fairly variable. It's not as even as people think. And so making this blend where we take the best of the best and we put it together into this beautiful wine that costs about $20 is, uh, you know, is, is actually one of the most difficult wines we make because it has to be so good. And it's often that kind of first sort of fancy Malbec that people taste. So I think if I have to pick one wine, I would pick the Catena Malbec with the pyramid drawing in the center. And it says on yes. the label, high mountain vines. And that, that pyramid on the label is actually a depiction of your yeah. winery in Mendoza. Yeah. I'm showing yeah. you guys here the pyramid. But you, Mary Orlin, you've been to our winery. Ha, I has have. the other Mary been to our winery? 
I have not. Uh-huh. And you know, actually my family was planning a trip to Argentina before COVID. We hadn't even begun the real mapping out of where we were going to go, but then COVID happened. So we didn't get to make our trip this year, but hopefully another year I'm sure, I'm sure you on will. my yeah. list. So I would love yeah, to- so the pyramid, um, I hope you get to come married to the pyramid. It was inspired in the Mayan architecture, the pyramids and Although the Mayans never came to Argentina because our Native Americans uh, were more nomadic. There were some Inca empire um, tribes that came. But uh, my father felt that he wanted to do a building that was not a copy of a European style. He wanted to honor our native terroir with the high altitude and the, the beautiful glaciers and the mountains. And so he was inspired by these pyramids to do a pyramid winery. And it's, it's a pretty magical place. You know, even if I'm there all the time, when I walk in in the morning, I feel like I'm walking into a temple. So cool. Laura, I feel like we could talk all day to you <laughs> and not be done because we just barely scratched the surface. I know, there's so much for us more. to wrap things up. But man, it has been fascinating and so much fun to talk to you. And uh, we are just so grateful for the time with you and for all that you've done and appreciate all of your efforts to bring Malbec to the table everywhere. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's the idea. To, uh, and, and I like what you said that, you know, we have our limited production, you know, single parcel wines that, you know, they're expensive because we don't have that many places that are so, so unique, you know, where you find the gold in the vineyard. That, that's why the title of my book, Gold in the Vineyard, because you know, gold, it has to be there, you know, so to make those really special collectible wines takes a lot of work and there are not so many places, but we also like to make really, really good wines that people can afford. And, uh, you know, that's important to me that, um, that people can drink our wines for many different occasions. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. And um, in addition to Malbec, you all also make some beautiful Chardonnay. Let's not forget about that. One of the best Chardonnays I've ever had was down in Mendoza from one of your vineyards. Just amazing. Which one? The White Stones or the White Boat? The White White Stones. So, you know, many people don't know that Argentina, because of the high altitude, cool climate, can make really good Chardonnay. So I, I do recommend for Chardonnay lovers to try our Chardonnays. They're very mineral, beautiful acidity, but they also have just a really nice creaminess that doesn't make them flat. You know, they're very special. Yeah, they're not buttery or oaky. They're just, you know, the pure expression of Chardonnay fruit. Well, I can't wait to get out and try that. And so for our listeners today, the winery is Catena Zapata and our guest, Laura Catena Zapata, is running the show these days, following in the footsteps of her father, but also forging her own path. And Laura, may the Catena Zapata chain that you spoke of, Catena being chain, uh, stay strong and continue to make wine that we can all enjoy and celebrate. Thank you Thank so you. much for being with us today on Sip Sip Hooray. Thank you, Mary and Mary. Sip Sip Hooray. Sip Sip Hooray. Cheers. Thank you. Gracias. It was just so wonderful chatting with Laura. She's got so much energy. I don't think I could ever keep up with her. (laughs) Me neither. She's incredible. Her whole family, like I said, overachievers, man, oh man. 
Totally. And it totally makes me want to go out and buy a bottle of Catena's Malbec right now because I don't have me any too. at home. <laughs> and I want to go to Argentina. Stat. For sure. For <laughs> sure. So folks, um, if you, um, you'll find the Catena wines fairly widely available now, especially at that sweet um, spot pricing she was talking about, about $20 or so. You can even find it in some of your local grocery stores, but definitely ask your local wine merchant if they aren't bringing in some of the um, Catena wines to do that. And don't forget the Chardonnays either, but the Malbecs are beautiful. Also, we should mention her book, Gold in the Vineyards. It's a beautiful book. It's a, it would be a lovely book to give as a gift because it's got a nice hard cover to it and it's just beautifully illustrated. And it would be a great gift introducing someone to wine because it's so darn digestible and fun. It's a really fun read. And you can find it online, Gold in the Vineyards. I bought mine on Amazon as I was buying them for gifts for Christmas. Sure. And um, so, and if um, you all like today's show, um, we'd love for you to subscribe to our podcast so you don't miss another great episode. Um, you can go to our website, sipsiphooraypodcast.com. You'll also find information from today's show, links to the Tena Zapata website, some fun photos, more information. And, um, and be sure to follow us on social media. You know, we want you, if you like this episode, share it with your friends, your family. Um, be sure to tag us at Podcast on Facebook and on Instagram. And that's going to do it for our show today. Thank you so much for joining us. And uh, we hope you come back again for another episode of Sip, Sip, Hooray. And cheers to you, Mary Orland. Cheers to you, Mary Babbitt. Sip, Sip, Hooray. Sip, Sip, Hooray. <laughs> <laughs>